Father, we give thanks to you now and praise to your name because you alone are holy and there is none like you in all the earth. And so we praise you and we worship you this, mere, this morning in spirit and in truth and we ask you, Father, not only to receive our worship as it has been offered, but now, Father, that you would enable us to worship even as we listen to your word read and explained and applied. Oh, Father, use this time now of worship, the worship of listening and a worship of humility before your word that we would come away changed to be more like Christ in the way that we think, in the way we behave. We long to see the Lord Jesus Christ glorified and, oh, Father, the joy of participating in your work in the earth, drawing men to yourself. What a joy, what a pleasure, what a privilege it is for us. And so, Father, we give you praise for it and ask you to bless us now as we think about your word. And we praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. We are in 1 Corinthians again this morning, chapter 8. And we have come to the Apostle Paul's discussion on Christian liberty. And there is much to learn. The question he has set out to answer in 1 Corinthians 8 is this. How does one know the limits of Christian freedom in areas about which the Bible does not explicitly speak? How does one know the limits of Christian freedom in areas about which the Bible does not explicitly speak? This was an important issue in the first century church of Corinth, and it's an important issue for us today. All of us wrestle with these issues, and the issues change from time to time, from culture to culture. We face new things, and with each new thing and each new opportunity comes a whole issue Uh, in what we may call the gray area. How do we please the Lord in the gray areas of life? What does it mean to be faithful to the Lord in decisions about clothing and entertainment and holidays and celebrations and food and drink in other areas where we may indeed exercise Christian liberty on those issues? Paul begins a three-chapter discussion on this topic right here in chapter 8. And so let's take a few minutes to read it together. And rather than reading the whole thing, I want to start with verse 7. So let's stand together and we will read 1 Corinthians 8, beginning with verse 7. If you have the New American Standard Bible, feel free to read it out loud with me as an act of worship. Let's read together. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care of this this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining at an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, the brother, for, who, for <laughs> by your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ has died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, last week we attempted to unpack the first eight verses of this chapter, and uh, this is what we learned by way of review. Number one, we learned that knowledge inflates, but love builds. This is exactly how Paul started in, in verse one. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So we learned that knowledge inflates, But love builds. The church leaders in ancient Corinth were lovers of knowledge. They viewed knowledge and wisdom as essentially the same thing. Greece was a land of philosophers. We know that. Aristotle, Hippocrates, Plato, and others. And the word philosophy literally means lover of wisdom or lover of knowledge. And that is what 
these men thought that they were. They thought they were philosophers. They thought they were lovers of wisdom. But Paul says, no, you are not lovers of true wisdom. You are only lovers of knowledge. Because we see this in your life when we see the pride. We see the pride that comes out of your life in the way that you speak, in the way that you write, and the divisions that you are calling, uh, the causing in the body. And what can we conclude? Not that you have true knowledge from God's word that would lead to wisdom, but rather that you have knowledge only, which puffs you up and makes you proud. If you had true wisdom, you would love. Your knowledge would lead you to love other people. And so Paul confronts them about their lack of love and their, the presence of pride in their, life, in their lives. Knowledge puffs up in the person who is convinced that he knows. And the word know here, as I said last week, is gnosis. It's an idea, the idea of attaining some level of knowledge on your own. And he's saying love puffs up the person who is convinced that he has attained a higher level of knowledge. But Paul says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, verse 2, he is known by him. In other words, what you really should be concerned about is whether or not you are known by God. Not how much you know, but are you known by God? Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples back in the gospel, specifically Luke chapter 10? He tells the disciples, who would be the apostles, uh, realizing that they were a very unique people that he gifted in very unique ways and sent them on a very specific mission. These are privileged men. And this is what Jesus says, Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that, what? That your names are written in heaven. You want to know what ought to get you out of bed in the morning? It's not your ability to exercise your gifts and influence people and be good at really, really good at something, whether it's your business or whether it's your hobby or whether it's your mental capacities, your ability as a student or whatever it is. What should get us up in the morning and drive us into our day is the knowledge that God has reconciled the unrighteous with the holy, that God knows me, that he has chosen me out of grace, not by any works of my own, not of anything that I have done for myself to earn merit in his sight, but rather that he in his mercy and grace poured out upon me the very thing I needed and gave me a righteousness that I desperately needed and didn't have and couldn't earn. That's what should wake us up in the morning and move us to live for God during the day. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be so impressed with yourselves. And don't be so committed to bringing yourself fulfillment in this life. The main thing is not what you can do or what you know, but what God has done for you as an object of his undeserved grace. That's what should make us and move us. And so he says in verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know, but anyone who loves God, he is known by him. And because you're a recipient of his grace, our response should be love for God and love for other people. As we looked at last week, Paul said in Titus, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Knowledge inflates, but love builds. Number two from last week, knowledge is, con <clears throat> is conceptual rather than relational. We saw last time that Paul really had no problem with the Corinthians' theology that was leading them to the conclusion that it was okay for them to eat the meat that was offered to the idols. There's nothing wrong with their theology. In fact, they had probably learned their theology from him. 
and perhaps Apollos, and there is some indication that Peter had some influence on the church of Corinth as well, but he was the church planter that originally started the church of Corinth. Their theology was fundamentally rooted in his teaching. They learned this from him. The problem wasn't their theology or the content of their theology. It was its extent. It didn't go far enough. They didn't finish it out. There was more to bring to bear on their theology than, than what they were. And so rather than using their theology as a means by which they understood their call to love one another and the means by which they would accomplish loving one another, rather they used their theology to justify their use of Christian liberty in order to please themselves, doing things that were, quote, lawful, according to the Bible, but things that could harm other people in the process. Knowledge is conceptual, not relational. And so here's, here's Paul's argument. It goes like this. I agree with your theology. Your theology says, yes, an idol is nothing more than a block of stone or wood. I agree with that. Yes, there is only one God in the world. I agree with that. Yes, the so-called gods and lords worshipped by the pagan religions of Greece are nothing more but impotent demons. I agree with that. Therefore, they would say, you are, Paul would say, you are right when you say that meat offered to an idol is nothing more than meat. That's right. It's only meat. However, look at verse 7. This is where we started our reading this morning. However, not all men have this knowledge. Not all men have this knowledge. Having come, out of, uh, having come to Christ out of paganism, idol worship, their conscience now, now that they've come to Christ, now that they've really gotten the real salvation, their heart has been radically changed. They don't want to have anything to do with idol worship anymore. Now that they've come out of that, their conscience is very easily harmed when they see you eating meat that was sacrificed to a demon. In cases like this, Paul is saying, love for your brother should trump your theology. Or probably a better way of saying it is, it's not that your theology is wrong, so maybe it should be said like this, love for your brother should complete your theology which would lead you to the right conclusion rather than to the wrong one where you stand now. Love for your brother will complete your theology if it is, as C.J. Mahaney would say, a humble orthodoxy. An orthodoxy that you are under and not over. You are not its source. You are not the one who gave it to us. You are the one who's been taught these truths by God in order to humble you under God and to humble you under one another. And so the lack of love in this church was evidence of the presence of a, of a good theology gone bad, a good theology that led to false conclusions because it was incomplete. And this is Paul's teaching about the exercise of liberty throughout the New Testament. And not only Paul, but Peter as well. For example, in Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, do what? Serve one another. Look for ways to get under one another, knowing that you're free. You're not free to exalt yourself. You're not free to... Pursue your own pleasure to the other person's hurt. Through love, which should be the end of your theology, serve one another. And Peter said this, 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, yes, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Here's what some people were doing and do today. We're free in Christ, therefore I can and insert anything. I can go to bars, I can eat at the temple, I can watch you know, movies that no Christian ought to be watching. Why? Because I'm forgiven and I'm free. Paul's saying, you don't understand freedom. Peter's saying, you don't understand true freedom. 
You now are free to serve your brothers. You are now free to get greater joy out of ranking yourself under your brother or sister in Christ, your husband or wife, than the joy that you would experience otherwise by pursuing that selfish pleasure. That's your freedom. You're free to glorify God in the joy of living to please him. And then again, Romans 14, which is a massive text on this very issue. And I might have time to read some, some more of it than what I had planned. But Romans 14, 7 and 8. Um, in fact, go ahead and turn there with me. Romans 14, this is turn left, okay? If you're in 1 Corinthians, turn left. Just a few pages, five or six pages. Chapter 14. And uh, verses 7 and 8 say this. For none of us lives for himself. None of us lives for himself. We believers, we don't live for ourselves. And none of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. The idea is we've been bought with a price. Therefore, now we glorify God on our bodies. We are not our own anymore. Do we have liberty? Yes. Do we have the freedom to exercise that liberty to our own pleasure? And Paul would say, of course you do. But not if it's going to cause the conscience of another person to be defiled. Not if you're going to tempt another person to sin by the exercise of that liberty. The way you dress, the way you entertain yourself and your family. You know, beloved, we just got to be careful about this. There are some things that the Kirk family does. Uh, sometimes we'll watch a movie, and we're very careful with our children to say, you know what, children, this was a good movie. We enjoyed watching this together. It was fun. We had a lot of laughs. Don't go to church talking about this. Because there may be people who would take offense that you watched a movie or that you watched this particular one or whatever it is. We're not living for ourselves We're living for other people. The question is, what does love demand? What does love demand when we're talking about the issue of the gray areas? Something where God has given us liberty in that he hasn't forbidden it, and he hasn't even spoken about it. Internet, for example. Paul would have said, enter what? This was not an issue. Can you use the internet? And some people would say, No, there is nothing good there. Um, The bad so far outweighs the good that no Christian should ever use the internet. No Christian should watch TV. Some people say that. And I know there are many in this congregation who don't watch TV. I don't know of anyone who would say no one should or that it would be sinful to do so. But there are some people who will say that. It's sinful. Some people would say it's sinful to send your kids to public school. Really? You have a text on that? Come on, this is a gray area. This is an area where you have to exercise your wisdom and you have to exercise uh, uh, um, love for your brother and sister in Christ. What does love demand? What does love demand? Look at the rest of this. Start with verse 14. Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. It's the same issue, food sacrificed to idols. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. You see that? If by food or exercising your liberty on whatever it is, the way you dress, the entertainment you watch, and and other people see it, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. That's the rule. Walk according to love. What does love require right now? Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let uh, what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ, notice this, this is an act of service to Christ, restraining my liberty 
at a particular occasion, a moment in time, I choose to restrain the exercise of my biblical liberties. In so doing, I am serving Christ. And this is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, verse 19, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives an offense. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating is not from faith. And key principle here, Whatever is not from faith is sin. If you can't do it in faith, it's sin for you. You say, can something be good and holy and right and allowable by Scripture to one person and for the person sitting next to them it be sin? The answer is yes, of course. Of course. One person can do it, and this is only relative to issues in the gray area where the Scripture has not explicitly spoken. I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute if we have time. But for the person next to you, for whatever their background, whatever the reason, their conscience may be stricken by that. And you invite them, come do this with me. Listen to this kind of music. Go to this, this or that restaurant. Or here, why don't you wear clothes like I wear clothes? Dress like I dress. Um, Do what I do. And whatever that thing happens to be, the other person goes... Oh, man, I don't think I can do that. Man, I mean, that bothers my conscience even thinking about it. And Paul would say, listen, if you're the one who has the freedom to do it, and you discover that the person sitting next to you, or the person with you, or the person in reasonable proximity of you as a believer is going to be offended by that, his conscience is not right with that, and now you're saying, do this with me, don't you realize you're opening him up to all kinds of temptation and if you lead him in this, into sin in that way, you're actually sinning against Christ. You say, well, how can it be sin? It is sin, according to the Apostle Paul, this passage, Romans 14, verse 23. If that person can't do it in faith, if they're doubting whether or not it's allowable and their conscience is bothering them, but they do it anyway in violation of their conscience, then they've sinned. And you may be the cause of it. This is really serious. And we tend to blow these things off as if it's no big deal. But in God's eyes, it's a big deal. I mean, remember Mark 9.42? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him with a heavy millstone hung around his neck that he be cast into the sea. Wow. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty sobering. You know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't watch that movie. Maybe we shouldn't go to that restaurant. Maybe we shouldn't dress like that. You see, just because God's word gives us freedom to enjoy certain liberties doesn't mean that we always have the right to do so. We don't always have the right. In fact, in chapter 13, I'm sorry, in chapter uh, 9, go back to 1 Corinthians, um, he deals with rights in chapter 9. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Or verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? He's going to be dealing with rights. Why? Because it's the same discussion. Liberty, freedom, right. They're synonymous terms, according to Paul. Just, Just because the Bible gives us liberty doesn't mean we have a right to do it all the time at will. In fact, as Paul said in Romans 14, 20, sometimes doing, doing something that is in the realm of Christian liberty, exercising our Christian liberty sometimes is evil. It's evil. This is what he says. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food or any other Christian liberty. All things are indeed, are, indeed are clean but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Why? When is that the case? Well, exercising your freedom in the gray areas of life is evil. Whenever you do it 
merely to please yourself. Can I show you that? Look over at verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 10. Uh, this, these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, are all dealing with this issue, so we can kind of jump around here a little bit. Um, look at verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23, 1 Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Listen to this, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. That's the problem. Seeking my own good. I'm seeking my own good. I don't care what you think. Who are you to judge me? I'm seeking my own good. In an area where the Bible gives me freedom, I have my rights. Paul says, "Um, you don't know the first thing about the Christian ethic. And maybe you don't even know Christ. Believers love one another. They sacrifice for one another. They restrain their liberties for one another. Because we live to show the world what God is like. And what did God do? God, in the person of Jesus Christ, laid aside all of his privileges, all of his rights as God. And he humbled himself and became a man and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. For what? To serve us. Mark 10, 46. For even the Son of Man did not come to be what? Served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If we're going to live to show the world what God is like, then we need to treat one another the way Jesus treated us. He didn't demand his rights. Did he have them? He was God. I mean, eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, but he never exercised that right when he was on earth. Rather, he ranked himself under everyone he met. Everyone who wanted to follow God. And he blessed them and denied himself for their sake. By the way, this is precisely Paul's point when he wrote these words. Tell me if these are familiar to you. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How many of you know that verse and love that verse? Isn't that great? How many of you use that in counseling or discipleship? Isn't that great? Do we teach our kids that? Isn't that a great text? Don't we love that text? But let's remember, how, how do we interpret a text? How do we get the full meaning of a text of Scripture? It's context, and we would say context is, what's the context of that particular verse? Well, it just happens to be here in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at verses 27 through 31. Same issues, same topic, the exercise of Christian liberty. Look at verse, uh, well, let's start with 24 because we read that a minute ago. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor, eating anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all that it contains, right? He's quoting scripture. I mean, everything that God has made is good. You can eat it. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone anyone says to you, "This, this meat is sacrificed to idols, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. Let me, let me lay out the scenario here. Here you are, you and your brother in the Lord are getting to know this unbelieving family and you're wanting to lead them to Christ. And you're the discipler of this younger, newer brother in Christ who's come out of paganism. And he is on fire for Jesus, man. I mean, he is all over it. And he wants to share the love of Christ with everybody. And so you're showing him how to do it. You're downtown in Sundance Square showing him how to share the gospel. And one of these people that you share the gospel with says, wow, I want to know more about that. Can you come over to my house? Let's have dinner. And you say, sure. And you look at your little disciple and you say, this is good, man. This never happens. This is going to be great. Let's go. And this guy's saying, yes, yes, this is really good. Let's go. And they go over to the unbeliever's house and they eat and uh, to eat. And, and the wife comes out and they've got a plate full of food, plate full of meat. And, uh, and someone comes along and, and, and mentions where they bought it. 
They bought it from the priest down in the market. And the young believer looks at you and says, this is meat sacrificed to an idol. And his conscience is being shredded. Now he's got a predicament. And now we've got a predicament. How does the church respond to this? How do believers respond? Here's an unbeliever. You're trying to share the gospel. You don't want to be offensive and say, I can't eat that. I mean, eat whatever's put before you, right? But here's my believing brother. I got an unbeliever, got my brother. The unbeliever's going to be offended if I don't eat. My brother's going to be offended if I do eat. Who do I offend? You know what the Apostle Paul is saying? Absolutely contrary, contrary to what the modern church would say. The modern church would say, by all means, tell your Christian brother to suck it up and choke it down. And the Apostle Paul says, you better not offend your brother. You tell that unbeliever, I'm sorry, but we can't eat this. Is there something else we can have? Got any Cheerios? Milk, strawberries, but we can't eat this meat. And you say, but you're going to totally blow evangelism, and you're going to lose these people as prospects for the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says, let God be God. Don't offend your brother. His conscience is weak. If you ruin his conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Rather than sinning against Christ, serve Christ. By as tactfully as you can, communicating to the unbeliever, my devotion is to Christ. We cannot eat this. We'd love to talk to you about the gospel, maybe in some other way, and move on. Is that what we would do? That's the extent to which we are being called to love one another. Whether it be, what do I wear to church? Whether it be, what do I participate in for entertainment? Whether it be, what do I eat or what do I drink? What kind of exercise do I do? I knew there, There's this Christian yoga, right? Christianity and Buddhism kind of pulled together. And there are Christians who say, look, we just reject, I mean, that demon stuff, that's all, that's a, that's a bunch of fooey. You know, there isn't anything to it. I mean, there, there isn't any God there. Buddha's nobody. Atman is Brahman. That means nothing. There's nothing really to that, but the exercise is good. And yet your sister in the Lord sees you doing that and they go, I thought you were a Christian. You see the dilemma? Who do you offend? What's more important to you, the exercise or your sister in Christ? Paul says it better be your sister in Christ. And so you see knowledge inflates, but love builds Knowledge is conceptual, not relational. And this brings us to verses 9 through 11 in chapter 8. Here Paul is continuing his same train of thought. Now he's saying, knowledge flaunts its freedom to the harm of others. Knowledge, not love, but knowledge flaunts its freedom to the harm of other believers. Look at 9 through 11. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat the things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whom Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren, And wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now that's serious. We are not permitted to flaunt our freedom. And you know what? Anytime you're at home with your family or with your friends and you do something and you think to yourself, you know, there might be some people who would be offended in this. We really had a good time. But you know what? We better not flaunt our freedom. We better just enjoy this privately and not go around telling everybody about it. On the other hand, if we're with someone who's potentially going to be offended, 
You know what Paul says? Very last thing. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, food or whatever else it is, causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That's radical. You see, beloved, in Christ, God has given us the freedom to enjoy many things in this life. We have liberty. But listen to me. All of you Americans, I myself being one of them, liberty is not your God. Freedom is not our God. Our God is Christ. We serve Jesus Christ. And life for us is found not in flaunting our freedoms, but in magnifying his glory, even in the mundane decisions about what we eat and what we drink and what we wear and where we go and what kind of entertainment we enjoy. All of the gray areas of life. The problem is that sometimes the exercise of our liberty might actually cause a brother to stumble. We may actually, it, it, the exercising of that freedom may be a stumbling block for another believer. The word stumbling block here means a hindrance, an obstacle thrown in the way of the weak over which they may stumble in a moral failing on the one hand or not having the strength to overcome their own scruples or disregard an example contrary to their conscience. What he's saying is simply this. When you throw that kind of stumbling block in front of the person, they're either going to tempt, be tempted to hate you because they're going to look at you and say, that's wrong. And you're going to say, but it's not wrong. It's not, it's not inherently wrong. What I'm doing, how, what I'm dressed in, whatever it is, it's not inherently wrong. You can show me in the Bible. Well, I, I can't find an exact verse, but it's wrong. Oh, give me a break. What kind of legalism is that? Get over it. And yet that person is going to be tempted to to break fellowship with you. Paul's saying, is it it really that important to you? I mean, is, is doing that thing in the gray area really that important? Is it really that valuable? On the other hand, and this is worse, and this is really the main point here, they're going to see you doing that, and they're going to go, huh, that doesn't seem right. It kind of bothers my conscience a little bit. But you know what? They're doing it. So it must be okay. I'm just going to do it. And they violate their own conscience. Their conscience is saying, no, 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 no. And they choose yes. And they violate their conscience. And they can't do it in faith. Therefore, it's sin for them. Wayne Mack tells the story of a couple he was counseling. They were from a particular group in Christianity that believed that drinking caffeine was wrong. I'll tell you, that's on the devil, that whole thought. <laughs> and um, they just thought it was wrong, and they taught all their people that drinking caffeine was wrong. Well, he had a kind of a construction job, and he would, um, uh, he would drive out to a, a loading point where they would meet, and everybody would pile into the work trucks. Uh, and the place where they met was um, like, a, uh, like a quick shop. And so he'd drive to this quick shop, and all the guys would get out of their cars and and they would pile into the company trucks. But beforehand, they would go into the quick shop and they'd load up on Cokes and, and sandwiches and whatever else they wanted to buy for snacks or whatever during the workday. And they would go and they would, they would go to work and they'd drink their Coke. And on the way back, you know, they might stop again and drink another Coke. And then they would go home. And he'd jump, jump back in his car and go home and pretend like nothing ever happened. Well, answer me this. Is drinking, drinking Coke... Uh, sin. Now, all you Pepsi levels, disregard. But uh, is drinking Coke sinful? No, it's not sinful. There's nothing wrong inherently with drinking sinful uh, 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 Coke. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how I got this job. Okay. <laughs> nothing wrong with drinking Coke. But he's drinking it anyway, and he's not telling his wife. He's, he goes home, and his conscience is just killing him. And he comes to counseling and says, my marriage is a mess. Because all kinds of secondary issues started coming up. You know, he wasn't being honest, you know, and, and there was tension, and she didn't know why, and, and he wasn't sure why. So he goes to Wayne Mack, and he says, it's my marriage. Well, I'm really struggling, and I don't know why. And he started kind of exploring what was going on, and, and uh, he finds out this guy's drinking Coke. And Wayne Mack says, that's horrible. That's evil. I can't believe you're doing that. 
You're doing this every day. You're going to this quick shop and you're drinking Coke every day. And does your wife know about this? No, just haven't had the heart to tell her. <laughs> As a biblical counselor, I mean, it would crack me up. But, I, you know, he try to keep a straight face. And, uh, okay, well, here's what you've got to do. This is sin. First of all, right now you need to confess it as sin. You understand why? He's doing it against his conscience. He can't do it in faith. It's sin to him. And so you've got to confess this to God. You've been violating your conscience. That's horrible. That's evil. Romans 14 says it's evil. And so you need to confess it as sin. And then you need to go home and confess it to your wife. And you would have thought this guy was, you know, confessing adultery or something. Oh, I can't tell her about it. I mean, she'll divorce me. And, uh, and so he goes home and he, and he tells her. They both come in for counseling. And he starts working with them and, and works her through the process of forgiving him. The whole transactional forgiveness thing. And he confesses this is a sin against God and a sin against you. And it's been the source of all of our problems. You know, drinking this Coke on the way out there and on the way home. And lying to you about it and not being truthful before God or you and whatever. And, and had to lead her through the whole process. Not being bitter here about him drinking Coke and, and everything. And will you forgive him? And, and she, he finally got her to say, yes, I forgive you. And then he said, okay, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10, Romans 14. Because um, what you need to learn is that drinking Coke is not a sin. Do you see the dynamics? In God's mind, if you violate your conscience, you've sinned against Christ. And if you are the instrument by which another person violates their conscience, then you've sinned against Christ. And he's speaking to the stronger brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, rather than sin against Christ, serve him. Serve Christ by restraining your liberties. Restrain them in all the appropriate times. Exercise them when it would glorify God and restrain them when it would glorify God. And so he's not taking away our liberties. He's informing us and strengthening us so that we can serve one another. Sometimes the open exercise of legitimate Christian freedom in Christ can cause temptation for someone else. And it may bring about unnecessary confusion in their conscience because they're not spiritually mature enough to handle it. I remember one time, uh, me and my boys were headed out to um, Big Ben with our Boy Scout troop, Christian Boy Scout troop, Troop 1136. It's named after Romans 1136, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And uh, we're doing this huge camping trip. In fact, I was a day or two late catching up with them um, but our next stop was uh, Big Ben, and we were going to go backpacking uh, for a day or so up on the mountain. And, uh, you know, we'd stop, and we'd get out, and we'd do things to kind of take a break. And on one occasion, uh, the boys in my car got out, and, and a, group, a new group of boys got in my car. Um, you remember that car? That was the one that got sucked up by the tornado, right? And uh, so this new group of kids gets in the car, and we're out there, and we're driving through the desert. There's nothing out there but rock and cactus and sand. And uh, so we're trying to have the conversation, trying to get to know each other. And one of my boys says, hey, Dad, can we pop in some music? And I said, sure. And so he popped a CD in, and, and boy, I started thinking, I don't know these boys in the back of the car. And I popped the off button for a second, and I said, hey, anybody in the back got a problem with us, you know, cranking on some Christian music, some contemporary Christian music? And one of the boys, sure enough, said, I don't agree with that. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't agree with it? He said, no, you know, my family, we just don't do that. We don't listen to Christian music. He wasn't telling us not to, but he was saying, you know, I just, I just don't agree with that. And we could hear it in his voice. His conscience was being bothered by this. Now I had a choice to make. What am I going to do? Is this an area of Christian liberty? Of course it's an area of Christian liberty. I mean, that's not to say that all Christian music is good. I think, uh, frankly, most Christian music is, is really pretty bad. Uh, on the radio. I mean, it's just worthless. Um, uh, And it robs your mind of engaging with God a lot of times. But you know what? I enjoy a lot of what's on Christian radio. And I would never tell anyone it was sinful because I don't have biblical precedent to do that. But you know what? In that moment, it would have been sin for me to turn it on. Because I sensed in my heart of hearts that this, this boy in the back whose conscience was tender 
He was trying to live for God, but this was really going to put him in an awkward situation. No way to escape. We're doing 75 miles an hour right out there in the desert. What are you going to do? I mean, you're stuck. And so what do you do? What does love demand in that case? And so I simply said, hey, no problem. What about listening to, uh, I got some sermons of some, of some of my preaching. No. I said, what about, uh, <laughs> and he said, no, turn the music on. <laughs> I, got a, I got a sermon by John Piper here, uh, which is a great message, I thought, for young people. And, and what about that? And he said, I'm good with that. And we popped it in, and we had a great time talking about what John Piper preached on. The question is, what does love for your brother or sister in Christ require of you in those moments? God has saved us by grace. We are not our own anymore. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. And what the Lord requires of us is that we put the other person's interests and his scruples ahead of our own. By the way, later on that day, that evening, it was dark. We were all camped out got our tent set up in the desert, and um, beautiful night, seeing the stars and everything. And, um, and so we're standing there, and this young man comes to me, and he says, um, Mr. Kirk, um, I just wanted to thank you for how you handled the music situation earlier today. Um, he said, you know, it really put me at ease, and I've never seen anybody do that before. Thank you. Now, I tell you that, understanding that for every illustration I can give where I was sensitive, uh, me and my family can give you about 20 illustrations of where I was totally insensitive and blew it in these situations. But it was so powerful because this young man, who I happen to know his family had a problem with me and my theology, but this totally opened the door for me to befriend this kid and speak into his life. And I would have missed it if I put my own desires first. Isn't that great? I mean, the Lord's way is always best. It's always best. And so you see, what Paul is telling us is that often the way we will determine how to glorify God in the gray areas is by asking ourselves, what does love require of me in this moment? What does love for God, what does love for my brother and sister in Christ require of me in this setting or in that? This is the question that settles most every question relative to Christian liberty, any question that we face, most of them. And sometimes it's helpful to put our freedoms in perspective as well. Sometimes the thing we want, we think is really valuable because we want it really bad, but if we really thought about it, we would say, you know, I guess in the light of eternity, it's really worthless. But I just wanted it. It's not that it has intrinsic value. It's just that I really wanted it, which is just another way of saying I lusted for it. Anytime we're willing to sin to get what we want, it's lust. And sometimes it's helpful to put these freedoms in perspective. Too often we value them too highly when in light of eternity they're really unimportant. So Paul says, look at verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8, 1 uh, Corinthians again. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. You know, God's not impressed with your not eating and your eating. I mean, come on, that doesn't, that doesn't make him smile on you. I mean, I'm more spiritual if I don't eat. Well, I'm more spiritual if I do eat. And Paul's saying, come on, it's food. It's drink. These are really... Issues that are are just not that important. It's very reminiscent of what he said back in chapter 6. Look there with with me just a minute. When he was talking about lawsuits and how you should handle it if you and your brother are just not able to reconcile. And he says this, verse 6 of chapter 6. A brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, verse 7, this is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits for one an- with one another. And, and look at his prescription here. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not let the other person get his way? Is it really that important? I mean, whether you're going to listen to this music or not, 
Whether you're going to eat that food or not, whether you're going to drink this or not, whether you're going to watch that movie or not, whether you're going to exercise this freedom or that liberty or not. I mean, come on, we're just talking about clothing and food and movies and, you know, cigars or whatever it is. I know some guys who are believers and, um, you know, Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars, right? So did D.L. Moody. And someone came and asked Charles Spurgeon, when are you, a woman, uh, uh, I think it was during the temperance movement maybe, and she comes and she says, Mr. Spurgeon, when are you going to stop smoking? And he said, I will stop smoking when I believe I'm doing it in excess. And she said, well, what would you consider excessive? And he said, smoking two at a time. (laughs) (laughs) And I I know some Christian pastor brothers, and and me and a couple of the elders joke about this, who um, they have this conservative Baptist conference uh, at least once a year. And uh, between sessions, they'll be doing announcements and they'll say, you know, and remember that 8 o'clock is dinner, and remember to check out at your hotel on time, and remember at uh, 7.30 tonight out on the patio, we're going to have a Charles Spurgeon memorial, and then on they go. Well, that's kind of code. You know, these guys are going to go out there and smoke cigars. They're going to exercise their Christian liberty, right? And so, I mean, we would never think about that. I mean, to us, we would, you know, who would want to smoke a cigar? But there are some guys who enjoy doing that. Do they have the freedom to do that? Well... It really depends. And isn't that the case with all of these issues? It really depends. Does the word of God say, thou shalt not smoke a cigar? No. But you know what? If you've got a Christian brother whose conscience is really tender and they're wanting to serve Christ and they look at you and they go, huh, maybe my mom and dad were wrong. And I don't know. My conscience kind of bothers me, but I bet I can get over that. And they sin. Because of your example, Paul's saying, that's serious. I would, if food or cigar or the way I dress causes my brother to stumble, I'll never do that again. I'll never smoke a cigar again. I'll never drink wine again. I'll never dress like this again. I'll never engage in that form of entertainment again, whatever it is. And so sometimes it's helpful to put it all in perspective. Most of the time, issues of Christian freedom are just not that important. At least not compared to the well-being of our brother and sister in Christ. Paul says something very similar back in Romans 14. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not about whether you eat or don't eat. The kingdom of God is about doing what's right, preserving peace between brothers, and experiencing the joy of that, which will so far surpass any pleasure that you can get from exercising that freedom at the wrong time. Get that? Does that make sense? Just nod your head and I'll be happy. In other words, even when you exercise your freedoms, you're really not going to gain anything of eternal value. It might offer you some momentary comfort and pleasure. Nothing inherently wrong with that. God has given us all things to enjoy. But what is that really worth to you when you could have rather enjoyed the benefits of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? And so Paul's warning, verses 11 and 12, should be a sobering, have a sobering effect upon us when we think about the exercise of our Christian liberty. And he says, for through your knowledge, or the exercise of your knowledge, the exercise of what you think you know, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whom Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You say, okay, but help me with this. I got some people in my life, my life, who are professional weaker brothers. I mean, they've known the Lord for a bajillion years, and they're just, oh my goodness, they're just so sensitive about every little thing, whether it's Christmas decorations or whether it's about, you know, clothing or whether it's about, um, 
Who knows what it is? Dress, music, big issue. And you know what? This is not a new believer who's trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. They're coming out of a background, and they're still a little bit immature. In fact, a lot immature, and we really need to nurture this thing and, and kind of work with them gradually to inform their conscience biblically. It's going to take time to do that. It's going to take time to inform their conscience, which means you're going to have to inform them about the facts that, that the Scriptures teach, and you're going to have to give them time to assimilate those facts so that their conscience is no longer condemning them about that issue. This is a new believer. This is someone who is weak. Let me tell you something about people who are the professional weaker brother. None of them would fit the description of weak, according to the Apostle Paul. I mean, these are the most strong, combative people you ever want to have in your church or in your family, or not have, as the case may be. And they're not coming, and, and they're not con- their conscience is not teetering between, oh, um, I might sin here, I might not, I'm not sure if my conscience allows me to do this. These are people who are saying, that's wrong. It's wrong. It's always been wrong. It'll always be wrong. And as long as you're in my house, it's wrong. As long as you're related to me, it's wrong. As long as you breathe the same air, it's wrong. And I better never catch you doing that or listening to that or eating that or whatever. Oh, my word. Can you tell these are exhausting? This is ex- People like that are exhausting. Turn back to Romans 14. I don't think I did a very good job with this in the first service, so let me uh, do a little better, perhaps, with it here. And so, Romans 14. This is the same passage. Look at verse 7. For no one lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Four, verse 9. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both the, uh, be Lord, both of the dead and the living. So Jesus is Lord. Now, here, I think the implication is Jesus is Lord, and you're not. Okay? There is one God, and you're not him. It's just important for people to get that. Um, verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, verse 13, Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Look, if you're the professional professional weaker brother, um, there's one thing you need to do, and you need to do it today. You need to repent of your pride. You're a proud person. You demand that other people see things the way you see them in areas where the Bible doesn't speak directly. And let me just tell you, You are accusing other people of sin. You yourself are sinning, and you need to repent. You are not a weakling who is kind of waving in the wind back and forth between, am I going to sin or or am I not going to sin? You are imposing your convictions on other people about gray areas. Now, we're not talking about moral issues, okay? We're not talking about moral issues, and we're going to see that here in just a second. Um... Paul is only talking about those issues that are in the gray areas. I love what Wayne Mack says. He says, brother, he told me this one day, brother, make sure you whisper where God whispers. Never scream where God whispers. And there are people all over the place who only see black and white. They can't see any gray. They can't see that there's areas of freedom and how those freedoms need to be exercised or restrained as each circumstance presents itself. But Paul makes it clear. Some will say, good night. Come on. Uh, These things are just not that big a deal. I mean, I just want to wear the dress that makes me look attractive. I just want, I mean, not me, it's someone else. I just want to... (laughs) I just want to drink a glass of wine. I just want to go to see a movie. I... I want to smoke a cigar. I just, want to use, um, I just want to use that particular exercise plan. And Paul is saying, look, that's fine. So long as you understand that if you're not careful with that liberty, you may wound a brother's conscience. And when you do that, you sin against Christ. 
So I'm not saying don't exercise your liberty. I'm saying let's be careful. Let's not flaunt our freedoms. Let's serve Christ by restraining our liberties when it's appropriate to restrain and enjoy them when it's appropriate to enjoy. Otherwise, verse 13, if we have any reason to believe that it might cause someone to stumble, then love limits its liberties to protect others. Verse 13. Um, and I'm in Romans, and I'm not going to do that again. Okay. Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Is that our attitude when it comes to exercising our liberties? This is what Paul is calling us to. It's what Christ is calling us to. And this is the kind of Christian ethic that brings great glory to God. Now, let me just give you seven things here at the end by way of applications. How do we, how do we know when it's okay to exercise our liberty in Christ on an issue where the Bible is silent? I was reading uh, an author, Richard Gans and John McC- this week, both had some excellent things to say about this, just in terms of application. So let me give you seven questions you should ask um, before you exercise your liberty, okay? Number one, will this activity produce spiritual benefit? Will this activity produce spiritual benefit? 1 Corinthians ten twenty three: all things are lawful for me, but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. You see, I can do this, but the question is, will it build up the people around me or will it undermine their conscience? Will it do harm? And so will this activity produce spiritual benefit? Number two, will this activity lead to spiritual bondage? Turn back to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. And notice, here we are, two chapters earlier, and notice the similar, actually three chapters later, because the previous one was in chapter 10. Uh, four chapters earlier, nine, eight, seven, six, right? So here's chapter six. Paul says this. See if this sounds familiar. All things, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Sound like what he's saying in chapter 10? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Are you mastered by anything? Are you mastered by any substance? I mean, do you drink coffee, or are you mastered by coffee? That's too convicting. Let's go to number three. <laughs> Will this activity expose my mind or my body to defilement? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Will this activity expose my mind or my body to defilement? Number four, will this activity benefit others or cause them to stumble? And we've already looked at this, but verses 8 and 9 of chapter 8, when he says... But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we don't eat, nor the better if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Be sensitive to those around you. You're going to cause somebody to stumble if you do this? Number five, will this activity further the cause of the gospel? 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also pleased all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be, what? Saved. So that they may be saved. And then number six, will this activity violate my conscience? Romans fourteen twenty through 23 The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself himself in what he approves. You can be happy by exercising your liberty as long as it doesn't condemn your conscience or cause someone else harm. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Will this activity violate my conscience? 
And number seven, will this activity bring glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. And this is in the context of what? A discussion on Christian liberty. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whether it be the way you dress or the entertainment you enjoy or the way you exercise or whatever it is, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Will this activity bring glory to God? Beloved, I don't know if this helps you, but it helps me. This is great help for me because it gives me some true biblical principles to help me guide myself and my family to enjoy life to the fullest, but to do it without harming other people or sinning against Christ, but rather living in the joy of glorifying him with all that he has given. Isn't that wonderful? God is so good to us. And he truly has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So, what are the limits of Christian freedom on the practical issues about which the Bible is silent? The limits are determined by our love for others because of our devotion to Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these truths. They are so helpful to us. And we see your glory in your word No man could have come up with this. No sinful creature could have come up with this. And so we praise you, O our God, for loving us so much that you were willing to give us explanation in the details about how we handle each individual, even the mundane individual issues of life and questions that we struggle with. Thank you for being so kind to us and for loving us this much. Lord, we are forever in your debt. And so we praise you for your grace. Help us to live in the good of it today. For we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen.